Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, it is official. We are now in the longest bull market in U.S. stock market history. Today was the day we finally took out the record that we set during the 1990s. That bull market ended in 2000, and we all know how badly it ended. It ended with a 50% collapse, an 80% collapse in the NASDAQ, and the Federal Reserve had to slash interest rates all the way to 1% and inflate a housing bubble in order to prop the market back up. And again, I think this bull market will meet a similar, if not worse, fate than that one. And in fact, I think that the coming bear market, and I said this before, will be the worst bear market in U.S. history, not probably in a nominal sense, but in a real sense, meaning how much value the U.S. stock market loses if you want to price it in gold. Of course, Donald Trump is out there claiming credit. This is the longest bull market in history, despite the fact that the vast majority of the bull market took place before he was elected. And of course, when he was a candidate, he called that bull market a big, fat, ugly bubble. Of course, now that it's his big, fat, ugly bubble, it's no longer ugly. It's no longer a bubble. It's probably no longer fat either. It is just a record-setting bull market that he wants to claim credit for. In fact, the Russell 2000 finished the day with another all-time record high. I think it was the only one of the indexes uh, that was positive. Actually, no, the NASDAQ was positive as well. Not setting a record high, but it was positive. The Dow, though, finished near the lows of the day, down just under 89 points. S&P down just over a point. So broader market. Uh, giving back some of the gains. The dollar was weaker once again. In fact, the dollar index got back under 95 briefly today. It closed just above, I think, 95.14, but it had fallen about two full points. Last week, we almost touched 97 on the dollar index. We were at 96, 90-something. We were just below, and we dropped the full two points in the dollar index, the price of gold inched higher yet again. In fact, I think for a brief moment, it got back above 1200, but it couldn't hold on to those gains. I think it closed only up, I don't know, maybe a dime or a dollar. But my feeling is with the US dollar falling, gold is likely to continue to inch higher. And once it does get above 1200 and hold it, 
we can have a more spectacular gain, especially when you consider what is going on politically. In fact, you can see the strength of the stock market completely ignoring uh, the the political news that is so damaging, I believe, uh, to the president's chances of reelection, even though I don't believe the president's going to get reelected anyway because of how weak I believe the economy is going to be when the voters go back to the polls uh, in 2020. But a lot of people don't recognize that, but they should understand the implications from what is going on politically. And I'll, I'm going to get to that in a minute. I want to, first of all, mention the Federal Reserve minutes that came out earlier today, which didn't seem to have much of an impact on the markets, even though I think that the consensus was maybe the minutes were a little bit on the dovish side, even though the the, the minutes still show that the Fed is very confident about the economy and confident that it's going to continue to increase interest rates in September, in December, they did acknowledge some weakness in the housing sector. And of course, I think they're understating just how weak the housing sector is. In fact, we got earlier today the numbers for existing home sales. And once again, the market was anticipating that there would be a rebound in existing home sales because they had fallen for three consecutive months and once again, the hopes were not realized. We had another decline. Now, four consecutive months of declining existing home sales. That hasn't happened in five years. And I think we're going to get another decline next month. And so if the Federal Reserve is concerned a bit about weakness in the housing market, why would they want to continue to raise interest rates? Because part of the problem for the housing market are the interest rates that are making homeownership more expensive. I think also they mentioned some of the concerns that they have regarding the emerging markets and part of the problem there, in fact, the main problem in the emerging markets is the belief that the US dollar is going to continue to strengthen. And the main reason that everybody believes the US dollar is going to continue to strengthen is because they believe the Fed is gonna keep raising rates and shrinking its balance sheet. So the longer the Fed is going to keep up the pretense that it's gonna to continue to raise rates and shrink its balance sheet, then it continues to put pressure on emerging markets and it continues to put pressure on the housing market. So ultimately, the Federal Reserve is going to have to give. And what the markets are going to have to start anticipating is the end of the cycle. Because even though the Fed is still talking about removing the monetary accommodation, there's not much left that they can remove without the whole thing coming toppling down. In fact, the evidence is already there that the economy is weak, despite the refusal of the markets to acknowledge that. And clearly, Donald Trump wants to continue to pretend that the economy is strong. I mean, that's um, the only thing he's got at this point to try to draw the public's attention away from the political mess that is unfolding uh, right before his eyes. In fact, let me talk about what happened yesterday. I mean, if you don't know any of this, then obviously uh, you're, you're uh, living in some kind of a, a vacuum or something. But yesterday, two key people, right? Uh, one, the president's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was convicted of multiple counts of serious you know, financial crimes. I mean, he wasn't found guilty on everything they charged him with. There were, there were some things where there was a hung jury, but forgetting about that stuff, multiple counts, uh, serious uh, uh, crimes, uh, financial crimes committed by his former campaign manager. And then later that day, Michael Cohen, right, the president's personal attorney, copped a plea to multiple financial crimes as well. So you have two key figures in Trump's life, in his campaign, who are now criminals, convicted criminals, or pled guilty to committing crimes. Now, obviously, the president has not you know, admitted to a crime. He hasn't been convicted of a crime. But still, I mean, guilt by association, these are the people that were in the president's inner circle, and they're committing crimes. But obviously, the most problematic, at least thus far, is the fact that one of the crimes that Michael Cohen 
pled guilty to had to do with violation of campaign finance laws. Now, how did he violate campaign finance laws? Well, he made two large payments, $100,000 plus payments. I think it was about a quarter million dollars approximately between the two payments to two women, right? One of them a porn star, one of them an ex uh, Playboy playmate. But both of these women claimed that they had affairs with Donald Trump. And in order to you know, buy their silence to pay them off, um, Donald Trump basically funneled some money through Michael Cohen to these two women so that they wouldn't sell their stories to the tabloids and, and go public because obviously it would have been uh, bad for his campaign to have these allegations come out. And, and so he tried to cover them up. Now, of course, Donald Trump claims that he knew nothing about it, right? That Michael Cohen just decided on his own to make these payments and Donald Trump didn't even know about it. I mean, that was his original story until he changed his story and said he found out about it later. Although they even have a tape recording of Donald Trump and Michael Cohen discussing how to make the payments before they were made. But of course, Trump's version of the story doesn't make sense. But now Michael Cohen, as part of his plead, said that the payments that he made were made at the direction of the president, that Donald Trump asked him to make the payments and then he made the payments and he's now pled guilty to the crime of, of making those payments. And so if it was criminal for Michael Cohen to pay off these women the way he did, well, then obviously uh, the president uh, conspired to commit that crime. But the president doesn't want to admit that. Now, of course, a lot of people can think, well, maybe Michael Cohen is lying. He's making all this stuff up. You know, he's copping a plea. You know, the president could pardon him, but he's not doing that, you know, for obvious reasons. So he's kind of leaving him to twist in the wind. But maybe they're shaking him down. And maybe uh, the prosecutor said, look, if you implicate the president, if you just say it was his fault, you know, we'll go easy on your sentence. I mean, that's always possible. But the reality is Trump's version or various versions, doesn't make any sense. I mean, how could he not know? I mean, first of all, if Michael Cohen decided on his own to make these huge payments on behalf of the president's campaign without consulting the president, I mean, first of all, the first thing that you would do, right, Michael Cohen finds out, if he's the one that found out that a woman is alleging an affair with the president and wants to be paid to be quiet, I mean, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to ask Donald Trump. I mean, rather, he wasn't the president at the time, but Michael Cohen is going to ask Donald Trump, hey, Don, did you actually have an affair with this woman? I mean, he's not just going to pay her off without finding out if he had an affair. I mean, why you're not going to pay off somebody just because they're going to make up a lie that I mean, then you'd be paying off everybody. I mean, anybody can lie and claim they had an affair. So the first thing Michael Cohen is going to do is going to talk it over with the president to find out if the allegations are even true. I mean, did you have an affair with this woman? But of course, once he had that conversation, he's not going to write these large six-figure checks and not get the okay from the president. I mean, why would he come out of pocket his own money? In fact, the president paid him back. Michael Cohen laid out the money and then Donald Trump reimbursed him, right, through payments to his law firm. Now, is it possible that you know, the payments were mislabeled that maybe Michael Cohen just shoved these payments into some other file and Donald Trump didn't notice these massive legal expenses. He never questioned, hey, what's this for? You know, what's this $150,000 for? You know, maybe his legal bills are so big they didn't even notice that. Again, that all seems completely improbable that Michael Cohen on his own would come out of pocket, his own money, pay off these two women, never even ask the president if the allegations are true, just pay off these women and then dummy up the legal bills and stick some phony bills into a file so that Donald Trump would pay and never even know that any of this happened. I mean, all of this is complete nonsense. Obviously, Donald Trump knew about the payments, authorized the payments, and he did it so as not to alert anybody to the fact that the payments were made. Now, one of the things that Trump has said is, hey, you know, how is this a violation of campaign finance laws? Because the money came from me. I gave $60 million to my campaign. So what's another $250,000? That is not the problem. The problem is the way it was done. See, had Donald Trump done it the right way, his campaign would have written the check uh, to the porn star and the playmate. 
right? But of course, had the campaign made these payments, anytime a campaign makes a payment, it's recorded and everybody can see, the public can see, the reporters can look at all the expenditures of the campaign. And if they see $120,000, $150,000 check to a porn star, it's going to be obvious what's going on. I mean, I don't think the president could claim that she was doing some kind of political consulting or other legitimate work. Obviously, it's a payoff. It's a hush money. So there was no way that President Trump or candidate Trump could have legitimately paid these women off without violating campaign finance laws. Because once Cohen made the payment, of course, he's violating the campaign limits. You can only contribute, I forget what the limits are, 4,000, 8,000 per cycle, you know, either in cash or in kind. And if you give money to somebody during a political campaign to buy their silence to benefit the campaign, it is a campaign contribution. And you're violating the limits, even though Trump, obviously Trump gave the money through Cohen to make the to make the payoffs. But the whole thing violated these campaign finance laws. Now, first of all, I'm against all these campaign finance laws. I mean, I don't even think they should exist. Right. I mean, I had a huge problem with campaign finance laws when I ran for office. And in fact, Trump is making a big deal out of the fact that Barack Obama had to pay a record fine for his 2008 campaign. They paid $375,000 fine for violating campaign finance laws. And look, you know, I mean, he's not in jail. He didn't get impeached. Well, first of all, I doubt that that fine had to do with personal conduct committed by Barack Obama. I mean, he had a huge fundraising machine. I mean, they raised like a billion dollars. It was the most money ever raised in a presidential election. And so when you're raising that kind of money, you know, you have huge, uh, you know, machine. Obviously, some of these laws are going to be violated. I violated campaign finance laws myself in my 2010 Senate campaign. I I had to pay a fine. I think it was $15,000. I had to write the check to settle the allegations. Now, I didn't do it myself. I had nothing to do with it. But, you know, some of the people on my team, they I guess they didn't code some contributions properly. So I did something wrong. Right. I didn't dot every I or cross every T. And I paid a fifteen thousand dollar fine. And in fact, proportional to the money I spent. Right. I spent about three and a half million dollars on my Senate campaign in the primary. Two and a half million I raised and a million of my own money I spent and two and a half million. I got donations. Right. And and then I had to pay that fifteen thousand dollar fine. Proportional, I paid a bigger fine than Barack Obama's $375,000 fine. I mean, the difference, I think, in Trump's case is that Trump actually knew about the violation because he specifically tried to funnel the money to these women in a way that he would circumvent the campaign finance laws because there's no way that he could make these payments legitimately. And I feel for the, for the president and the predicament that he was in, right? He was in a predicament. But I do not like the way he is handling it now by lying about it. You know, obviously, in hindsight, what the president should have done before he announced his candidacy, right, when he wasn't an official candidate, before the campaign finance laws, you know, had any implication, he should have made a list of all the women he had affairs with. I don't know how long that list is. Right. And he should have contacted these women and paid them off. He should have said, look, I know we had an affair. Uh, how well I'm going to give you a check for 50 grand. Just keep your mouth closed. Don't sell your story to the tablet. Don't talk about it. I just want to. You know, he should have contacted them all. How much would it have cost him? Right. That's what he should have done. But he didn't think about it. Right. Or maybe the list was so long that you know, he, he didn't want to spend the money. I don't know. He spent so much money on his campaign. Uh, he could have invested a little money into into covering his tracks. I mean, you know, when you run for office, you know, the skeletons come out of the closet. I mean, a guy like Trump, he was not a career politician. He's having a good time. You know, he's living a big life. He's got a lot of women in his life. You know, he's got skeletons all over the place when it comes to uh, this extramarital stuff. And, you know, I don't even know. If Trump was cheating on his wife, even though he had these affairs when he was married, I mean, maybe he's got an open marriage. I mean, it's not cheating if your wife allows you to do it. But obviously, either way, 
it's not good when you're running for office, right? Because if you're cheating on your wife, well, that's bad. I mean, if you'd lie to your wife, I mean, imagine what you do to the country, right? So people want to think you're honest. And if you can't be honest with your wife, well, then how are you going to be honest with voters, right? But if you have an open marriage, then, you know, that doesn't sit right with a lot of voters either. There's a lot of very religious people, particularly in the primaries, the Republican primaries. And if Trump is like, look, I got an open marriage, you know, I, you know, I can fool around. I mean, that doesn't seem like the greatest of Christian marriages. And if you're you know, trying to hold yourself out as a family values kind of guy, it's hard to say that, you know, you also have sex with lots of other women. And it's OK because, you know, your wife, you have a deal with your wife. Right. So either way, he can't admit what's going on. He made the mistake of not paying these women off before he uh, ran for office. So he did the next best thing. Look, he was in a spot. Right. This was a difficult spot. Do I blame the president for what he did? Not really. I mean, yes, he violated campaign finance law. You know, it's not the end of the world. I don't think it's you know, they're not like they're going to, you know, recall the election and say, you know, it's it, it's a foul. You know, the gate, you don't you, you lost Hillary Clinton wins. You know, he's not going to get impeached over this. Certainly the Republican Congress isn't going to impeach him. He's not going to get charged with a crime. Would his campaign, could the campaign get a fine? Sure. The campaign could get a fine. Just like I got a fine, right? I got a $15,000 fine. As again, I think the president's, you know, violation is a little bit more personal because I think he was involved in it personally in the campaign finance violation. But at the end of the day, the, the act is not as bad, in my opinion, as the cover up and the lies that are designed to refuse to admit what should be obvious. And this is what I think makes the president look so bad is when he just keeps lying about what happened rather than to tell the truth. And then you have to have other people lie for you. I watched that press conference uh, today. Uh, with Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and I felt so bad for her having to lie, having to repeat this mantra, the president did nothing wrong, yada, 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 every time she was asked a question. Hey, the president said he had no knowledge of these checks. Did he lie? Oh, ignore it and just go back to your to your canned uh, speech. Of, oh, the president said that he found out about it later. You know, did the president lie? Oh, that's nonsense to say. They lie. Yeah, he lied. He lied. You know, he lied to cover up something that was wrong. But, you know, he was in a box. He was in a very bad situation. There was no easy way out of that other than just to let the women tell their story. Right. And let it come out and then say the women were lying if, in fact, they were lying or even if they were telling the truth to just say they were lying. But the president, you know, just tried to cover it up. And I don't even know, you know, this is the first time he ran for office. Maybe he didn't even realize, you know, how many rules he was breaking. Obviously, he didn't want anybody to know. He knew that if he made the payments through the campaign, that everybody would know about it. So he had to find a way uh, to make it in a roundabout way. So clearly, he probably knew that there was something wrong with what he was doing. But, you know, he didn't really have much of a choice because these women put him in that kind of a box. He was really being blackmailed. He was being shaken down, right? Women were like, hey, I'm going to out you. I'm going to come out and I'm going to say all this stuff. I mean, they didn't say it. They wait till he runs for president, right? Then everybody wants to come out and get paid and tell their story, right? And so he, you know, he did what he, he was like a caged uh, animal and he just did something. And I think that if the president simply told the truth, and of course, the earlier he would have told the truth, the better, because the more you lie, the more you have to lie. Remember that old uh, quote from Sir Walter Scott, right? Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Because once you lie, then you got to tell more lies. Then you have to keep track of your lies and you forget which lies you told. And there's just no way out of this mess. Remember, Richard Nixon, when he went down, he didn't necessarily go down for the burglary, the break in at water. It was the cover up. It was the destruction of justice. It was the lies. I mean, that's what got Bill Clinton impeached. He wasn't you know, convicted, so he wasn't removed from office, but it was lying about having sex with Monica Lewinsky, not the fact that he had sex. He should have just admitted it and he never would have been impeached, but he lied about it. And that was the basis of the impeachment. Now, 
Um, Donald Trump isn't lying under oath, right? He's just lying to, to reporters or he lying to the American public. I mean, this Bill Clinton lied under oath, but you know, the public is probably not going to differentiate between that. And I think by lying about this, he creates an even bigger issue. And again, it's not just this one issue of violating campaign finance laws. It's also about the whole conspiring with Russia to, you know, influence the election, which, you know, he probably did that too, but maybe it was inadvertent. I I don't even believe when um, Donald Trump Jr., claims that, you know, his dad didn't even know about the meeting he had with the Russians. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me that if the Russians are contacting Trump's son and they say, hey, we got all this dirt on Hillary Clinton, you don't think he's going to say, hey, dad, guess what? I got this great call. We got all this dirt on Hillary. I mean, you know, how could he not tell him about the meeting? Now, you know, Donald Trump probably didn't even know that, you know, he was violating some law by working with the Russians on, on dirt, because, I mean, again, he's not a career politician. And, you know, people sling mud all the time. I mean, every time there's a campaign, there's opposition research. People are always looking for dirt on their opponent. Now, maybe he didn't appreciate the difference between getting the dirt from an American versus getting the dirt from a Russian. I don't know. Maybe it was an innocent mistake. Hey, they got dirt on my opponent. Fine. Let me hear it. What is it? What do you got? Right. Just tell the truth. I didn't, oh, yeah, they get, you know, the Russians had some information. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know there's anything wrong, right? Just be honest. It's the lies. It's the repeated lies because now you've got Michael Cohen now is claiming that he was in the room with Trump when his son told him about the, the meeting with the Russians. And now, of course, you got Paul Manafort who's looking at a, you know, huge sentence Now, he has a lot of Russian ties. I mean, chances are, if Trump did work with the Russians, Manafort knows about it. Now, you know, he's going to say something about it, probably in exchange for maybe a lighter sentence. The president, of course, could pardon him, but then it'll really look bad if he pardons him. Because like, oh, why'd you pardon him? What were you afraid of? Right. What you know, what was the deal? You pardoned him to shut him up. So the president is damned if he does and he damned if he doesn't when it comes to a pardon. But that's why he just needs to be honest. Now, of course, if he's honest now, he's got to admit to more lies than had he just been honest right at the beginning. But, you know, if he's going to continue to lie, then he's going to tell more and more. Right. And then and then the more lies you tell, the harder it is to acknowledge that you've been lying. And of course, what is going to happen now? And again, the markets don't seem to perceive this risk at all is the Democrats are probably going to take the House of Representatives in the midterm elections. I mean, the odds are probably, you know, 70, 80 percent, maybe better, right, that that is going to happen. And one of the first things they're going to do is impeach the president. And there's plenty of information that they can use. Had the president gotten it all out of the way and admitted it, it would probably be a non-issue. But if he's going to deny this vehemently in the face of overwhelming evidence that he's lying, well, then he's preserving the issue for the Democrats. And of course, they want to get revenge on the Republicans anyway for impeaching uh, Bill Clinton. I mean, this again, this rarely happens that a president is impeached. I mean, it's only happened twice in our history. And the other one was Andrew Johnson, right? I mean, you're going back, you know, almost a couple hundred years for that one. Of course, Richard Nixon would have been impeached, but he resigned before before it happened. But no president has been convicted by the Senate. It wasn't even close with Clinton because not a single uh, Democrat voted to impeach him, and they didn't even get all the Republicans. They didn't even get a majority. It, with Johnson, Johnson almost got impeached. I mean, Way more than a majority. I think he barely survived by like one vote saved Johnson from actually being impeached. So I don't think there's a danger of Trump actually being convicted and removed from office. Because, again, even if the House of Representatives impeaches the president, the Senate has to convict him on a two thirds vote. And even if the Democrats get the Senate, which is going to be a tougher thing to do than the House. But even if they had it, they're not going to have two thirds of the of uh, of the of the Senate. So he's not going to get convicted. But I think that an impeachment of the president by Democratic House simply makes the president that much more vulnerable to a defeat in 2020. And why the markets are not worried about these prospects, because obviously if the markets are celebrating all the tax cuts, the tax cuts are going to go away if the Democrats have the White House and the Congress, especially 
how much further to the left the Democratic Party has moved, I mean, we're going to have massive corporate tax cuts. I mean, hikes. What if we get that, you know, you know, ridiculous uh, law that gets passed by um, the, the uh, Capitalist Responsibility Act that was just introduced by Elizabeth Warren? What if that gets passed? I mean, people should be worried. What Donald Trump should be doing is just telling the truth and talking about how bad these campaign finance laws are anyway. Talk about draining the swamp. One of the reasons we have a swamp is because of these campaign finance laws, which are really designed to preserve the incumbents. That's why they're there. That was one of the reasons that I had such a hard time when I ran. And one of the reasons that I don't want to run again is because I can't deal with the campaign finance laws. It makes it very hard for people to self-fund or not really self-fund, but non-politicians to get large donations uh, from their supporters. There were a lot of people when I was running for office that would have given me a much bigger checks than they did, but they weren't allowed to. Now, I wasn't getting any money from any special interest groups because, of course, what special interest group would pay me money? Because I'm not going to dole out any favors. Right? No one could buy influence from me because I wasn't going to peddle any. So, But I had honest people that believed in me that would have written big checks, but they weren't allowed to because of campaign finance laws. I mean, this is all about protecting the career politicians, the bureaucrats. Of course, they pretend that it's all about keeping the money out of politics, but it's not. It's about making sure that all the money stays with the incumbents, stays with the people in power, right? Because all these laws are written by incumbents. They're passed by incumbents to, to favor incumbents and to make it harder for challengers to win. That's why the turnover is so low. That's why it's so hard to get rid of these congressmen, uh, these senators. It's because of campaign finance. So what Donald Trump should be doing is saying, yes, I violated these campaign finance laws, but you know what? The laws are terrible. Let's get rid of them. They're a disaster. You know, they 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 serve the the political class. They make it harder for outsiders to break in and just temporarily uh, come to Washington to try to do a good thing. He could turn it into a positive. Yes, I screwed up. I know I, my back was to the wall. I was, you know, I really didn't know what to do. I made a rash decision uh, at the time. You know, yeah, I regret doing it. All right, so what? You know, again, they're not going to recall the election. It's not like they're going to say, okay, you know. You cheated. Hillary wins. You know, you got to resign. None of that's going to happen. And it would be a dead issue. Instead, by denying, by lying and lying and lying, it, you keep the story alive. They're going to keep on digging. They're going to keep on trying to expose him. Meanwhile, all the president can do is try to divert everybody's attention to this booming economy. Right. Oh, booming economy. In fact, even a, a Sarah Huckabee Sanders in her presentation, she kept saying, hey, the president's not concerned about this. He's just working on the economy, working for the American people. You know, all this nonsense, just like the president gave his speech yesterday. I was watching. I forget where he was. A big rally. And again, he says that um, the economy is booming like it's never boomed before, which, again, is a complete crock. Booming like it's never boomed before. I mean, the only way that President Trump can believe this is if, if, if he is completely ignorant to American history. I mean, we have boomed uh, much more. I mean, we're not even booming now. But obviously, the strongest period for the American economy was during the Golden Age, right? The period after the Civil War, but before uh, the First World War. During that period of time, it is unprecedented increase in prosperity that the world has never seen, not just American history, but in world history, what we accomplished as far as the increase in the standard of living of a people in a period of time is unmatched anywhere, right? Even including maybe what you saw recently in China, nobody can hold a candle to what the United States accomplished. And it was so big, we had millions and millions of people, immigrants piling into our shores, taking part in this, you know, experiment in liberty, right? We had this industrial revolution and standards of living went up dramatically. So, I mean, we're nowhere near that. In fact, I mean, the economy was stronger in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 80s, in the 90s than it is now. So for Trump to say this is the biggest boom in the U.S. history is complete other nonsense. But he has to keep talking about this to try to deflect people's attention, A, from these other things. But the one thing that he's got going for him 
is the loyalty of his base and the loyalty of the Republican Party. And they're only loyal as long as they think the economy is good. Right. They think, you know what, we got to look the other way on all these lies and all this stuff because we got this great economy. And this is the trade off. Right. We're going to sell our souls because we got this great economy, even though we don't really have a great economy. But we're just going to pretend that we have a great economy because the president is great at going out there and talking about how great the economy is and how great the market is and claiming credit for it, even though it's obvious that it's not just like it's obvious that he's lying about the payments you know, to these women. I mean, he's lying about the fact that the economy is great. I mean, first of all, we've got record amounts of uh, Fed accommodation. Even though the Fed has been hiking rates, rates are still extremely low. The budget deficits are enormous. We have all this artificial stimulus, yet, you know, there's not much growth. In fact, in the president's rally yesterday, he talked about the 4.1% GDP growth from the second quarter. And he said, they said it was impossible. They said it could never be done. And here we did it. So early in my presidency, we've achieved the impossible. We got 4% growth and they said it could never happen. We don't have 4% growth. We had 4% growth for one quarter, assuming they don't revise it down. You know, And we don't have 4% growth for the entire year. In fact, we probably won't even have 3% growth this year. Obama had four quarters where growth was more than 4%. He just never had a sing- an entire year where it was over 4%. He never had a year where it was over 3%. And so far, neither has Trump, because last year was 2.2. And this year will probably be under 4% as well. But he wants to act as if he's done the impossible, right? So he can claim credit for it, even though it's, it, it, it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, first of all, you go back when America really was great when we really had a strong economy. I mean, and compare that to what's going on today. First of all, when America really had a strong economy, right? Only one person in a family had to work. That's how strong the economy was that married women didn't have to work. Their husbands could afford to support the entire family. That's not the case today. I mean, could you imagine what would happen to the U.S. economy if all the married women just left their job, just quit their jobs and went home? to become housewives, the whole economy would implode without women's labor. Well, we didn't need women's labor at one point because we had a much stronger economy than we have today. When did women, you know, really start to go into the labor force? Well, they started trickling in in the 1960s, right? Because we introduced the welfare state and higher taxes, but it really kicked in in the 70s and then the 80s because of all the inflation that resulted from the big deficits of the 60s. So taxes went up, inflation went up, and men could no longer afford to support their wives. And so the wives had to work. Right now, of course, when we rewrite history, right, they want to tell us that, no, this was all women's liberation, that, you know, women were liberated. They, They weren't liberated. They were liberated when they didn't have to work. That's liberating, not having to work. When you're forced to work because your husband can't afford you, you're no longer liberated. You, you know, now you got a job, right? Yeah. Are there women that have great careers? Yes, there are, right? But there are a lot of women that have lousy jobs that don't want those jobs, that they would rather be home with their kids, but they can't afford to. But those women used to be able to afford to stay home with their kids when we had a really strong economy. And in fact, their husbands didn't have to go into debt, right? They had savings. Their cars were paid for. They paid off their home mortgages. They weren't leveraged up to the hilt, right? And their husbands, a lot of them didn't even go to college. And the ones that did, didn't have to borrow any money. They weren't They weren't carrying student loans. I mean, this economy is a shadow of what it used to be. Now, I mean, imagine what if all of the people who are currently retired, and in fact, at some point, we won't have to imagine this, we're gonna be living this. But what if all the people who are currently retired, what if, uh, what if they have to go back to work, right? Because they can no longer afford retirement because you know prices have gone up a lot and they can't afford you know, to stay retired. Are we gonna claim that this is elderly lib, that these old people are now liberated, that you know, you know, they had such a mundane life of playing golf and shuffleboard and pinochle and marjan and you know that was so boring and meaningless. Now they're they're so happy that they're liberated and now they're back on the job, right? No, I mean it's not liberation. It's it's because they can't afford what they really want to do. They can't enjoy their golden years anymore. They're forced to work. Hey, what about this? 
What if the economy is so weak that people have to pull their kids out of school and send them off to work? What if a family, the husband and the wife, both working, they still can't make enough money to put food on the table, and now they got to get their kids and send them out to work? Are we going to say the kids are liberated now? They're no longer wasting their time in school. They're out working and they're all liberated. You know, why did we get rid of child labor? Right. The, the, the left likes to believe that, oh, the unions eradicated child labor. No, it didn't. It was capitalism. Children stopped working when their parents could support them, when they no longer needed their kids to work. I mean, nobody wants to send their kids out to work unless they can't they can't avoid it. You have no choice. But when capitalism increased the productivity of workers, that's what you know, that's why child a labor stop. That's why a lot of women didn't have to work outside the home because their husbands became so productive thanks to capitalism, thanks to underconsumption and investment and limited government and sound money. One person can now support the entire family and all these other people didn't need to work. That is a strong economy. And he was able to do it. A guy could support his family, his wife and his kids without going into debt. Either, either to get a college degree or going into debt to maintain their lifestyle because people could afford the things they were doing. And, you know, think about all capitalism did for women, too, even, you know, when they weren't working, because think about how difficult it was for women to do housework before capitalism invented all sorts of products that made a housewife's job so much easier. I mean, we take it for granted now, but you think we always had you know, washer dryers or vacuum cleaners, you know, or, you know, sewing machines, not that anybody sews anymore, but that was a big deal when we invented that or refrigerators or all of the things in the home that they didn't have a hundred years ago. I mean, women taking care of a house was a lot harder before you had all these appliances to make, to make your life easier. I mean, imagine if women today, not only did they have to have a job, but they had to come home and they didn't have any appliances, right? If they had to do laundry the way my grandmother used to do laundry. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, we couldn't even survive. Thank God we have this technology. Otherwise, there's no way that the economy can even withstand this. And of course, you know, women used to have help, right? Back in the 1950s, 40s, 30s, 20s, whatever. If you were middle class in America, right? Middle class family, the husband had a job, uh, the wife did not. You still had full-time help. I mean, that was the norm. Middle-class families had full-time housekeepers, right? Middle-class families don't have housekeepers today. I mean, you got to be rich. Look, it costs me in Connecticut to have a full-time housekeeper. It's like $50,000 a year, $50,000. That's the going rate. And, you know, you could pay 60, 70 if you want to get, you know, top of the line uh, people. I mean, I, you know, I, I try to come in at the bottom of the pay scale, $50,000 a year, Right. You can't afford that. A lot of middle class families don't even make fifty thousand dollars a year after taxes because, you, you know, it's not a deductible expense. you got to pay for it after tax. Now, you might think, gee, why do you have to pay uh, so much money for somebody uh, to clean a house? Because that's the supply and demand. I mean, who used to be the housekeepers and the maids back in the day? There was single women before they got married. Maybe some of them came from poorer families, but, you know, they didn't have any real skills, but, you know, they knew how to help you know, take care of a house. They learned those skills from their mother. They, they, they helped out around their own house. And so they would get a job, you know, uh, helping out uh, around the house. But those women don't really exist anymore because, you know, they got three or four kids of their own. They're on welfare. They're on food stamps. They're on housing subsidies. I mean, you have to pay these people a fortune to get off, to give up all that welfare. And they, of course, they can't even afford to give up all the welfare because they can't afford to pay the childcare uh, to watch their kids while they're cleaning your house. So we've created this society where young people can't even afford to do these jobs. And I don't blame people for you know being on welfare rather than cleaning somebody's house. I mean, people make decisions in life based on their own self-interest. And if we rig the deck like that, if we give people an out, if we give people the opportunity to choose welfare over a low paying job, and a lot of people are gonna choose a welfare, especially when they're young and they don't really understand maybe all the implications of, you know getting knocked up and having a bunch of babies just so you can, you know, you know, live on, you know, the dole and not have to work. But that is the reality. I mean, everybody that I, you know, when you interview somebody for a housekeeper, the people that want the jobs are the people who are married and their husbands make too much money to qualify for welfare, but they need a second job. And so, you know, they're, they're willing to work as a housekeeper, but they're not going to do it unless you pay them, 
you know, a lot of money. I mean, they don't, they don't, they won't, they won't work cheap. So, um, but all of this is a function of the collapse in the standard of living. The average uh, American household today, what we consider middle class, the living standard is substantially lower than what it used to be when America was actually great. Yet Donald Trump is going to pretend that the America we have today is the greatest it's ever been and the economy is booming like, like it's never boomed before when none of that is true any way you want to look at it. And at some point, this smoke screen is going to wear off and it's going to be obvious that Trump is lying about the economy, just like he's lied uh, about these other things. And I really wish that Trump, again, would just tell the truth. I mean, even if he's not going to tell the truth about the economy, tell the truth about these payments, tell the truth about Russia and, and move on. Although, again, he's already potentially lied about it enough times that he is making the issue much worse than it otherwise would have been had he just told the truth. Now, I know a lot of people are going to be out there and, oh, you know, Peter, you're just criticizing Trump. I'm just being honest. Look at the facts, right? It, it's obvious that, you know, he's not telling the truth. Now, Trump, of course, is going to try to say, oh, yeah, this is part of the media. Everybody's trying to bury me. There's they want they're out to get me, which is true. But he's making it easier for his critics to get him when you're obviously lying about something, right? And, and then by doing that, he's just emboldening uh, those critics because it's like, hey, you know, you got a tiger by the tail. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna keep on going and keep on going and keep on pressing this until maybe the president has to finally admit the truth. But of course, the longer it takes, the worse ultimately is politically. But again, I think the president's not going to win reelection. The only question is, Will he resign before he's up for re-election? Because if the economy tanks, which I believe it will, and if the president's approval ratings go down, which I believe will happen as the economy moves into recession, then maybe he will no longer have the support of his own party. In fact, his own party may in fact want to have somebody else run in his stead uh, rather than Trump at the top of the ticket if he is so unpopular as a sitting president in a recession uh, when, you know, he's been potentially already impeached uh, by the House of, uh, of Representatives. So potentially the Senate could convict him or give him the, op the option more likely of simply resigning. But I don't know how much better um, Mike Pence chances of winning in 2020 would be if he was at the top of the ticket. Um, and maybe it'd be slightly better than Trump, although if the economy is in recession in 2020, I don't think any Republican has a prayer of winning against whoever the Democrats nominate, even if they nominate somebody who is a admitted socialist. I might as well uh, wrap up this podcast. A couple of points I wanted to make. One, I noticed that Michelle Caruso Cabrera uh, announced today that she was uh, resigning uh, from CNBC. And I, I mentioned Michelle on this podcast not too long ago when I was criticizing something that she said. I took issue. So I called her out on it. And, you know, I, I, I should have probably prefaced those remarks by basically giving uh, Michelle some props because overall, I, you know, I like her. I mean, she's one of the better uh, people on financial television. I had her on my uh, my radio show one time when she had she wrote a book that came out. So she was a guest, one of the few people from CNBC uh, to actually come on my show as a guest. But she's a real uh, free market gal, libertarian. So in general, I agree with much of what she says. And so I didn't want to create the impression that I think that, you know, she's just some kind of talking head because I, I happen to critique her. She's leaving. I think she's going into the private sector. She's going to be on the board of a company. But I think she's going to stay on as a contributor uh, to CNBC. And so she will be on from time to time. So I do want to wish her uh, all the success in her new career and just make sure that I get out there that, yes, I called her out. But, hey, hey, you know, I call people out even if I agree with them, even if I like them. I mean, sometimes if they say something wrong, you know, I'm, I'm not going to uh, you know necessarily give give them a pass, just like, you know, when it comes to. President Trump, when I agree with Trump, I agree with him and I'll and I'll give him props when I agree with him. And when I disagree with him, when I think he's done something wrong, um, I'm going to call him out. I mean, I'm not going to be a hypocrite like a lot of these Republicans who are going to look the other way and think that Trump could do no wrong. He can. 
He does plenty of things that are wrong. He does some things that are right. And, you know, I wish he was getting better advice. Unfortunately, you know, I'm not in a position to advise him. And I think the people who are advising him are advising him to do some things that are that are pretty bad. But again, a lot of it is probably driven by 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 him, by Trump. And so that's, uh, you know, that's his own problem. But the other thing I wanted to talk about was the uh, big spike we had last night in Bitcoin. And it's very interesting uh, to watch this because there was a exchange that shut down BitMEX, right? They were shut down for, I don't know how many hours, for some routine maintenance. And they had, you know, announced in advance the exact time they were going to shut down the exchange. And so obviously when this exchange shut down, that means that there won't be as much volume as there would be if the exchange was open because, you know, whoever was going to buy and sell on this exchange, well, those orders would be suspended until the exchange reopened. And as soon as the exchange shut down, I mean, right to the second, all of a sudden Bitcoin shot up like 400 points in the span of a couple of minutes. So it's like people were waiting for the exchange to shut down because they knew that there would be less volume because of the shutdown. And they took advantage of the light volume to push the price up. So clearly there was manipulation going on. People came in buying Bitcoin, not because they wanted to buy Bitcoin, but because they wanted the price of Bitcoin to go up because they were hoping that by forcing Bitcoin higher, that that would attract more buyers into the market. And once again, it did not work. We did get as high as I think 6,900 in change. In fact, on the website I'm looking at, Bitstamp, the high was 6,906.81. And I think it got higher on some exchanges. I don't think it ever broke 7,000, but I think it got closer to it. And then, I don't know, about an hour or two ago, it fell all the way back down. It got down below 6,300. As I'm recording this, it's recovered the 63 handle and it's trading around 63.50, but way off the highs uh, that it came to. But the point that I wanted to make here is to me, it really looked like there was an organized effort to manipulate the price of a Bitcoin higher at a time when they knew the volume would be lighter and the attempt failed. I mean, it worked temporarily in that they got the price to move up, but this is how weak Bitcoin is. This is how strong this bear market is. Any rally is going to be sold. This market, as I said, is going to continue to fall until there's some type of capitulation uh, on on the part of long-term buyers, holders to throw in the towel. And all we've been doing recently is just bouncing around what is supposedly support, right? We're trading, you know, between 6,100, 7,000, most of the time between 6,100 and 65,000. I think last week, again, we dipped below 6,000 ever so briefly and, you know, the market bit up. But all these all currencies are looking weak. Bitcoin is looking weak despite all the attempts uh, to prop it up and to try to get, you know, some kind of rally going. It ain't happening And I am expecting this market to roll over, break support and have a bigger drop. So, hey, if you're in these things, you know, you can always buy them back. Right. If you you know sell some and buy them back lower, you know, personally, I'd sell some and just walk away. You know, if you got profits, fine, take them and run. Right. Otherwise, you're going to lose them. But technically speaking, even if I had no real opinion, if I was just looking at the charts, looking at the action. Right. We're setting up for a big drop. And that failed attempt to rally yesterday simply strengthens the bearish case.